0: Welcome guys and gals to the Man Talks Podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is Maria Konakova, and we are going to dive into some very interesting topics. She has written a book called The Confidence Game, in which she unpacks the makings of con artists what makes con artists so effective, uh, what we need to learn from them, and how we can actually take some of the pieces that make con artists so effective and help us develop a deeper sense of confidence and self-awareness, which I thought was incredibly intriguing. So she's got some fascinating, fascinating stories uh, of you know some specific con artists, and we start to look at the different pieces. So just before we dive in today, I just want to just give you a quick reminder, uh, head on over to the Mantox community on Facebook. Join the conversation there. We've got uh we've got about 3,500 3, guys now that are a part of that community. We've got some great conversations and dialogues that happen on a weekly basis. I do some uh lives there every once in a while and dive in and do some do some great conversations around fatherhood, fitness, finances, Um, you name it, business relationships. We do a lot of relationship stuff because I love it. Uh, so head on over there, join. It's obviously totally free, and there's just some great guys from around the world. And you can hear about some of our men's events that are happening, uh, in specific select cities around North America. So, Head on over, check that out. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes because it goes a long way in keeping you up to date to the latest episodes. So, uh, on this episode, we are going to talk about a few things. Uh, like I said, Maria is a specialist in con artists, but she also wrote a book before that called Mastermind How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. Now, we don't talk too much about the cognitive part. Of using our mind, and we've, you know, kind of dived into that, dove into that before on this podcast. But specifically, how we can start to identify people that are maybe trying to con us uh, for their own personal, political, economic, social status uh, gains, or how we can start to leverage some of those same tools uh, for our own sense of social good. So, how we can use these tools for uh, serving other people, being a better coach, being a better husband, father, uh, business leader, you name it. So some really cool stuff in here. We also talk about current climate uh, politically, uh, and we dive into a few different genres. We even touch on cults which I know is a little bit of a far cry. But, uh, you know, Maria makes a great point and case that some of the greatest con artists of all time are actually cult leaders. So we we'll talk about that a little bit. So without any further delay, this is a really great episode. I, I definitely encourage you to grab a pen and paper and take some notes on some of these things. But otherwise, enjoy some of the incredible stories. And without any further delay, please welcome Maria Kornikova.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Connor.
0: I'm excited to to have you on the show. You've got some incredible workouts, some great writing uh, that that you've done and produced in the past. I'm I'm excited to dive into some of the concepts and and even some of the some of the things that you're doing right now. Sound uh, for the research that you're doing, sound absolutely uh, incredible. So I want to t- kind of dive into that. But first and foremost. I have to ask you the question that I ask all the guests because when I don't, my listeners reach out to me and are like, why didn't you ask the question? Um, so <laughs> so, <laughs> so here's the question. Uh, tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today.
1: All right, I thought you were going to go with the meaning of life question, but this is, this is pretty close. <laughs> um, so I think that the one experience that kind of made me who I am made me a writer, made me interested in the kinds of topics I'm interested in, goes back to when I was really little, um, five years old. So I was actually born in Moscow, and English is not my first language. Um, We came to the United States when I was um, about four and a half, and I did not speak a single word of English. All I knew um, was that we were in a country – where no one understood me. And I remember just completely vividly. And it's kind of scary, because I don't really have that many memories from when I'm that young. Um, Obviously, we don't form memories that well at that age. But I have this very vivid um, image of my first day of school in kindergarten, where I had spent hours and hours practicing how to write my name, so that I knew how to get my name tag, at least, And I get to the kindergarten classroom, and my name tag isn't there. And I just remember this moment of panic thinking that, you know, what is going on, and I can't explain it to anyone. And all of the teachers were kind of telling me that, you know, maybe I'm mistaken, um, and that I'm in the right place, and I just don't know my own name. Um, And i just i lost it you know i'm a five year old crying helplessly not knowing uh, not knowing where i am or what's going on and i just remember that feeling of not being able to communicate of just not being able to say what i want to say of not understanding what people are telling me and it was absolute helplessness and i think that you know in retrospect that is probably the origin of my obsession with language with words with communication probably why I became a journalist, why I became a writer, kind of the moment that defined the rest of my life, so to speak. Um, And, you know, I might be giving it a little bit too much importance because obviously there's not one moment like that. But I do know, um, according to my parents, that I announced when I was six years old to the entire dinner table that I was going to be a writer when I grew up. So it's not something that happened later in life. I definitely made that decision very close to that uh, kindergarten experience. Hmm.
0: Interesting. I mean, it's it, I mean, it's incredible that that memory stuck with you for so long, and, and actually, you know, kind of stood out. I think for myself, like I don't really have any. I think I must have announced to my family when I was a kid that I was going to be like a firefighter or something, like <laughs> you know, just or, or like an NHL superstar. You know, I'm going to be a famous hockey player, which which clearly never panned out.
1: Hey, you never know.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is interesting though how you know, oftentimes. I can't remember who said it, but uh, someone said our mess is our message and how a lot of the times the the mess in our life, the sort of seemingly traumatic experiences or the things that we can never seem to work through or get through end up shaping and, and molding us in a way that causes us to find meaning in our lives by giving ourselves to these things that that we end up doing. So how did that then shape? Uh, you know, how you went through school and what you did uh, post-school. Tell tell us a little bit about that.
1: You know, I think I, I spent a lot of time trying to fit in, trying to not feel like someone who was an immigrant, someone who didn't know English, because I remember, you know, I had to take ESL classes. And finally, luckily, I I was very, very young and little kids pick up languages quickly. So luckily, I I became fluent pretty quickly. But I still, you know, we didn't have a lot of money and we lived in a pretty wealthy town. So, you know, everyone's wearing all these trendy clothes and I'm wearing hand-me-downs from, you know, whoever donated them to us. And it was really the struggle to try to Americanize myself and try to make everyone think that I was just like them. And it wasn't until much later on, I think it started in high school, but didn't really didn't really kind of crystallize until after I graduated and until college where I actually embraced who I was and embraced my background and said, you know what, um, I'm Russian and my name is Russian and this is actually an asset, not a liability. And having struggled against that for so long, I think it was this moment of kind of acceptance where I could actually use it to my advantage. And that's when I really started developing um, my voice as a writer. Um, I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I'd struggled with it. I always, you know, I was writing You know, in elementary school. I wrote little books. My first book was about trolls. I wrote a play in fourth grade. I was, you know, I had lots of ambitions, but I don't think I really started finding my voice and who I was until I stopped trying to be 100% all American and realized, you know what, that's not who you are. And if you keep trying to do that, you're just going to never be yourself and never realize your full potential. Um, I'm still, I I, I think I'm still working through that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I mean, I love that your first story was about trolls. I just like it reminded me of like those little, those like I grew up in the 80s. So I remember those like little troll yeah. dogs with the, you know, like the colorful hair and like the that perfectly round butts.
1: That was (laughs) great. I had those. I had those troll dolls. And I actually coveted the troll dolls of my classmates because I only had one and they all had these huge troll families. So, so yeah. So that was exactly the inspiration. And I remember asking because I have zero artistic bones in my body. Like I can't draw a stick figure. So I remember asking a friend of mine who could actually draw. I remember asking her to draw little trolls for me. And I tried copying them so that I could – you know, make the illustrations for my book, but it was hopeless.
0: Oh, man, that is funny. So so tell me a little bit about storytelling, because, you know, I think that what I hear from you, and and, and part of the work that you've done is, is that storytelling is, you know, obviously, we all know that it's a very important part mm. of our culture. And it seems to be um, more and more becoming uh, a, a very coveted thing that if people or when people are able to communicate stories properly, they end up becoming more influential. And so I would love to get your perspective yeah. on on whether or not that's true and why uh, storytelling is so influential for people.
1: Um, I think it's absolutely true. I mean, I think storytelling makes the world go round and is something that has been around as long as humans have been around. It even in some ways predates language because the way that we can tell stories doesn't have to be verbal. And there's actually some evidence that, um, the nonverbal cues in how we communicate. So gestures, tone, posture, facial expressions, all of those things can be more powerful sometimes than the words that we, that we actually utter. And so I can just picture, you know, cavemen before the creation of language, telling stories to each other. And you can see how some of the more, um, strong and popular ones would be the ones who can keep their audience entertained, especially back before you know everyone had a cell phone or even books or anything like that. What are you going to do with your entire day after you've beaten the lion or the tiger um, and have actually survived? So I think that storytellers have always had outsized power in society. And these days we can see it. I mean, you can see it all the time in terms of who the most successful people are in any profession. So who are the entrepreneurs who get money? They're not always the people with the best ideas. I mean, we, I I need only say Theranos for people to see how powerful a good story can be. Even when something seems totally scientifically implausible, if someone can present a good foundation myth, well, they'll start getting lots of money. The lawyer who wins a trial isn't the lawyer necessarily who who presents the best evidence. It's the person who tells the most compelling story. Those are the those are the winners of society, and that, that my fascination with storytelling actually is what led me to write my second book, *The Confidence Game*, about con artists because. Con artists are kind of the best storytellers in the world. Um, Their stories are so powerful that they can recast our reality and make their world or the world that they're trying to create as real, something that we believe in and something that becomes our world. And kind of that dark side of storytelling um, was something that really drew me in um, and that I think fueled my fascination with that specific subculture.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because I think that, I mean, you you laid out the sort of foundation about why it's so important. I'm curious as to what makes con artists so good at telling stories and how do they use those stories to sort of reshape our perspective or our reality? Because it, it does seem that you know, I think when people refer to, to somebody like Steve Jobs, they said he mm-hmm. had a reality distortion field and he could actually distort the reality that people had, whether it was their beliefs or their values or what they even perceived to be possible in a certain project. And so is that is that linked to storytelling? And and if so, how do con artists then use that to to shape how we see things?
1: For sure, it's linked. Um, I think reality distortion field is a very good um way of putting it. So to go to the kind of the beginning of your question, why are con artists so good at this? I think that they're intuitive psychologists who are incredibly good at reading people and figuring out what it is that people want. So I look at you, I pick up on all sorts of cues from you, who you are, what your hopes are, what your fears are, and you know, what is the world that you want to be true? Because the thing about most people, actually, I'll say all people, not even most people, is that we don't see the world the way it is. All of us distort reality on our own. We don't need any help from con artists doing that. We go through life with kind of this self-serving bias where we think that we're slightly better than we are, that we are slightly higher on all positive qualities, that we're slightly lower on negative qualities. Generally, we just have a more optimistic and hopeful perspective of the world um, than is warranted. And that's very, very psychologically adaptive because if you didn't think that tomorrow was going to be better than today, then why in the world bother living? You know, why get up in the morning if, you know, today was shit and tomorrow's going to be even shittier and the day after that's going to be just absolute, like the shittiest day in the world? If you actually thought that, then, you know, why in the world are you going to to go from day to day, even if it's true? So the only people who don't have that bias are the clinically depressed. And you see what the result of that is. So clinical depression, not very good. So con artists actually tap into that. So they can, they're very, very good at listening. That's actually, I think, one of their greatest skills is listening and paying attention to people and figuring out, Okay what's your reality distortion? Kind of how do you see the world? What are your hopes specific to you? And then they craft a story that taps into that and you are ready to believe it because it's your story. It's something that already meshes with your worldview. And you're like, yeah, this guy's really good. You know, this guy knows exactly what I'm about. I'm going to trust this person. And before you know it, you're actually part of the story. And then it becomes more and more difficult to get out of it. And, you know, if you think about what, People like Steve Jobs, he is not a con artist because in my mind, the definition of a con artist is someone who... Takes advantage of other people's confidence for their own ends. And those ends are kind of malicious personal gain. And there are lots of people like Steve Jobs out there who use a lot of the same techniques, who are very persuasive, who are good at reading people, but they don't use them for their own personal malicious ends. So they're not taking advantage of other people's confidence for themselves. And so they, they're not con artists. They're just incredibly persuasive. And he, if you, if you remember something that he would kind of often say is he, doesn't give you what you think you want. He gives you what you actually want before you even know it. So it's kind of going a step, a step beyond and saying, okay, you know, I know what you want better than you. But most con artists aren't visionaries like that. They don't actually make that leap. Instead, they say, okay, I'm going to figure out what you think you want. And that's exactly what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you what you think you want. And so their stories end up being incredibly compelling because they're about hope. They're about optimism. They actually tap into that basic human desire for the world to be better than it is and for your own sense of worth because what do most con artists do they appeal to your sense that you're unique that you're special that you deserve this so when something wonderful happens you don't say oh that's a little too good to be sure you say yeah You know, I've been working really, really hard. I deserve a great business opportunity. Yeah, you know what? It's time I met the love of my life. This person seems too good to be true, but I deserve too good to be true because I'm too good to be true myself. And so we we have all sorts of uh, ways of rationalizing why good stuff should be happening to us. And even the cons that aren't actually positive stories, like there are cons who, the con artists who take advantage of, know, people's goodness. Like they say, you know, I have cancer. I have a kid who has cancer. I need donations. There are cons like that all the time. But that also appeals to your desire to be a good human being and your perception of yourself as someone who helps, not as someone who turns away. So every single time, no matter whether the con is positive or negative, it's really a story about how wonderful, how good, how caring the victim is.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because as you are unpacking this there's a few things that are like coming out to me it's like i mean there's so many things first and foremost the thing that popped out to me in, in initially is that the difference in in somebody who you know is a great leader and and listens deeply and knows what people are looking for sometimes even before that they know them is that they don't use them for their own personal gain whereas somebody who is trying to uh, con somebody is using them for for strictly personal gain. But then there was also this other part of me that as I was listening, I started to think of like some of the people that that I've worked with and some of the you know clients that I've had and worked one-on-one with or in groups and whatnot. And oftentimes they're stuck, they're stuck in their life in some way because it almost seems like they've conned themselves into being in this space of, of not moving forward, that this is what they actually want and need. So anyway, I think we can probably like parking lot that for later on. Cause I'm, I'm curious to kind of move into the space of how do we start to, I, I like the fact that you, uh, identified and sort of defined what a con person does, con man, con women, uh, cause I'm sure that there's both it, it, it actually, let's start there. Is, is there predominantly a gender that is more likely to con
1: Yeah, so I've actually been been asked that a lot because um, you think, you know, con artist is obviously gender neutral, but con man is something that people use all the time. Um, And we do seem to have many more stories of prominent con men. And I, um, you know, my response is half joking, which is that women must be better at it because they're not caught as often. And I think there's, (laughs) I think that there's actually... So there's some truth to why there would be more men. Um, And the rationale behind that would be um, that there is a certain personality profile that a lot of con artists fit. And it's the so-called dark triad of traits. Uh, which is narcissism, uh, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. And psychopathy is way overrepresented among men. So over 95% of psychopaths are male. Um, And so in that sense, insofar as there is an overlap, it's by far not a perfect overlap. But insofar as there is an overlap there, you'd expect more men. However, um, the other two traits, narcissism and Machiavellianism, are evenly distributed um, in the genders, and I actually think that they're more important um, for successful con artistry than psychopathy. Um, and so, and in some ways, women might actually be better at some of them. Um, so Machiavellianism comes from Machiavelli's The Prince, and it's the ability to persuade other people to do what you want them to do. Without their realizing it. So they think it's their own idea. So they'll be like, oh, you know, wouldn't it be awesome if we invested in this cool land deal in Florida where that's the actual con? But suddenly they think that they're a great investor and that they came up with it on their own because the con artist has so expertly. Planted the seeds of the idea, um, and I think Machiavellianism is actually the single most important trait of a con artist. Um, and women are very, very good at that art of subtle rather than overt manipulation. And so I think that my joking—you know—they're probably not caught as often. There might be some truth to that. And some of the best con artists that we know of um, in history um, were indeed women. And if you think about spies, there's a lot of overlap between being a spy and being a con artist. In that, this, the toolkit is very, very similar. Except you're not doing it for your own ends. Obviously, you're doing it for you know for your government or for you know whatever for whatever organization you're doing it for. But if you think about famous spies in history, all of a sudden you have this very long list of women. Um, so I do think that there is something to this talent of persuasion um, that makes women quite successful
0: really interesting yeah really interesting and I, I think you know it's I've definitely seen that in in some areas that that uh, I, I think it's interesting because right now there's a lot of talk and over the past couple years there's a lot of talk that that men are more prone to narcissism but what you're saying is that it's actually much closer uh, in 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 scale for both men and women to to experience narcissism so I would actually love for you to maybe just define some of the parameters if you can of of narcissism and how that shows up in in people because the word gets thrown around so much especially in dating right it's like oh he was just such a narcissist and that's (laughs) why he didn't call me back right and so right right right. a lot of a lot of guys specifically have been labeled or or have adopted this mentality that they're a narcissist when in actuality you know maybe they set a boundary for themselves or you know maybe they ghosted or or whatever whatever was going on (laughs) um and yet and yet all of a sudden they They've become whitewashed and white-labeled as this, like, narcissist, right? So I would love to just unpack that a little bit.
1: Yeah, so I think a lot of people use narcissism a little bit too broadly, just like people use con artists too broadly, by the way. Um, And they use narcissism to just mean egotist or someone, you know, who's egocentric. And it's really not the same thing. So narcissism does come with an overblown sense of self, but it also comes with a second component, which is a sense of entitlement um, and that you deserve certain things in this world. So for example, some of the con artists that I researched while writing the book um, actually, a lot of them would steal different people's cre- uh, credentials or identities um, in order to perpetrate their cons. So there was one who loved stealing like PhDs and MDs and all these titles. And his reasoning wasn't that he was doing anything wrong. It was that he deserved those titles more than the people who actually went to medical school, more than the people who actually went to grad school. And so he was just righting a wrong in the world. You know, the world didn't give him those degrees, but he deserved them and he deserved them more than the people who had them. So he was just going to take them and he's not doing anything wrong. In fact, he's making the world much more fair than it was before because he is just putting to rights something that should have been his all the time. And that's actually, that's a key component of narcissism, that kind of thinking that I'm going to take this because it's rightfully mine. And I'm actually not even going to feel guilty about it because it's rightfully mine. So a lot of people who are egotists don't have that sort of entitled streak to them. Um, So you have to have both components and the egotism has to be more than just normal egotists behavior, because let's face it, most people are egotists. I mean, you're the center of your own universe. And it's very, very difficult to imagine that something matters for someone else as much as it matters for you. Like, yeah, dude, you know, I'm sorry, you're having a crap day. But like, let me tell you about my day. Now that's really crap. And you just, you know, you are, you play much more outsized role in your own narrative. and so that's really not enough for narcissism. And that sense of ego is much stronger. Um, it goes to much higher proportions, like you really, really think that you are the you know beyond and end-all, that you're special, that you're deserving, that you're entitled. Um, and I think we often slap that label on people who are just kind of shitty human beings, but not necessarily narcissists.
0: <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it's uh, but it's but it's true though, right? It's true. It's like there's there's bad behavior or you know maybe somebody has some egotistical behavior and then we we put this very sort of extreme label onto them and and uh, it's easy to sort of like write them off and say like oh yeah they had some some egotistical behavior so I'm curious because I do want to get into you know I want to get into a few things around some specific con artists how people can can start to uh, sort of not protect themselves but but understand who's suscept- susceptible, but first and foremost i w- I would love to hear why you feel that this is so relevant right now because your book <laughs> your, your book came out at a very opportune time, and I think for the average listener you know or the average reader looking at something like this and and sort of saying like "Oh well, con artistry like why is this actually relevant or important to me in my life and and as i'm you know have been listening to you and uh, and as I was doing some research around you, I, I started to see all of the relevant areas that this might be applicable. So, But I would love for you to unpack some of that for us.
1: Yeah. Um, so first of all, just to kind of get the timeline straight, because a lot of people who read my book, they're like, why didn't you mention Donald Trump? And my answer is, right. well, we, we didn't know about Donald Trump when I was writing the book. Like, It just so happened that my book came out right at the time that the Trump phenomenon was happening. Um, and I think that's the most direct relevance to all of us because that affects every single one of our lives. And yes, I do think that Donald Trump is kind of the quintessential con artist and that he knows exactly what he's doing and that he basically uses the con artist playbook from step one um, through till the end. Um, and that's one of the reasons why his supporters are so fervent. It's because they've been conned. And one thing we learn about victims of con artists is that once they're conned, almost no amount of evidence is going to be able to get them off that path and have them realize that they've been conned. Our powers of rationalization and self-deception are so incredibly strong, um that we will basically just close our eyes and ears and talk ourselves into staying in the story rather than admit that we've been wrong for a very long time. So his followers are kind of the quintessential victims of con artists. That said, so let now that we have the Trump <laughs> component out of the way, obviously when I was writing the book, I, you know, No one knew that Donald Trump was going to become Donald Trump. We just kind of knew him as a has-been reality TV person. And one of the reasons that I thought that The book was very relevant, um, kind of aside from that political thing, and that I still uh, think that it's very relevant, is that we're living in another golden age of the con. So golden ages of cons happen in moments of huge societal transition. So uh, during the Industrial Revolution, you had this insane kind of con little kind of blow up where all of these con artists started coming out, The gold rush, westward expansion in the United States, basically whenever there's social upheaval, whenever there's new stuff happening that reshapes society, that reshapes your mindset, that reshapes the realm of what's possible, those are the moments when cons can really flourish because they take advantage of that upheaval, of that uncertainty. Um, One of the con artists' greatest skills is tapping into uncertainty and giving you certainty, giving you kind of a definitive story giving you something to hold on to when your world is shifting. So moments are of transition are kind of the con artist's best friend, both societal transition and personal transition. And I think that right now we are living in kind of the technological revolution um, where we just have this rapid, rapid um, rate of technological change that outpaces anything in history in terms of Just how rapidly and just how extremely things are moving. And if you think about what that does to our frame of reference, you can see why con artists can really take advantage of it because there's always new technology and kind of this techno optimism. And so if you get a new business opportunity, let's say um, in the technology field, well, are you being an absolute moron for thinking that it's a con? Or are you, and, you know, are you missing this huge opportunity? Or are you being kind of safe and just a, you know, solid person who's thinking things through? It's really hard to know because you know, you might have missed the internet, you might have missed Facebook, you might have missed all of these huge advances because you were a non-believer. I think we have a, a great potential con in progress right now with cryptocurrencies. No one really knows, you know, why are they valued at what they're valued? Are you going to be the sucker if you don't invest? Or are you going to be the sucker if you do invest? So the fact that there are such adamant points of view on both sides, show why that would actually be the perfect thing for con artists to get in on, right? Because, because of that uncertainty, if I can be the person who gives you a a clear cut answer, you know, crypto is the future or crypto will kill all of your assets eventually, um, then I can be this guru and I'm going to get lots of money no mm-hmm. matter what happens with crypto. Um, and so that's just a great example um, that we're living through right now that shows why kind of disruption and change at a rapid pace that really challenges our framework and makes us unclear as to which is the best way forward, why that's kind of a why that's an environment that's perfectly suited for con artists.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. I actually just the other day started watching this show with my fiance called Wild Wild Country on Netflix. And it's a it's a six-part miniseries. It's documentary on the life of Rajneesh Shri Bhagwan, who is also known as Osho. And okay. it's really interesting because it, the the whole thing is is kind of like this big con play, and he ends up he ends up running basically like a a cult down in Oregon, and you know some some people said it was a sex cult, some people just thought it was a cult, some people you know thought it was like the second coming of you know Jesus Christ. So it, it's really <laughs> interesting to see because one of the things that you mentioned before is that uh, you know when when people are wrapped up in the con, they so like fervently believe it. That any outside information, they just rebuke and reject, regardless of how true and how much data and how much honesty there is to back it up. They, they just ignore it entirely mm-hmm. and, and they believe whatever story is fed to them. And so I'm, I'm curious to get your insight on how we start to identify what a con actually looks like, like, are there, are there specific parts to a con? Like, how do we start to see, like, I have so many questions. I feel like we could do this for yeah. a couple of hours, but, but let's just, let's just start there. Like, are, are there certain parts to a con that, that usually go into it?
1: The, the answer to that is both yes and no, in the sense that, yeah, there are absolutely ways to identify a con. Um, there are absolutely parts to it. However, if the con is being done to you and it's being done well, you will see none of it. So I can give oh, you <laughs> a framework and be like, okay, here are the here are the points of a con. Here are the red flags. But the red flags aren't only apparent from the outside. So you're objective about other people. That's why you often see others being conned, and you're like, oh my god, what an idiot! Like, how stupid do you have to be? But when you're the target, all of a sudden it looks much more rational and it looks just much more commonsensical. And you're like, Oh, well, this, this makes total sense. I'm just going to go ahead and do this. And then if someone else points out that you're being conned, you'll be like, you don't know what you're talking about. You, you know, just go away. And the example that I've actually used a few times to get people to understand this point because a lot of people will argue with me and be like no i know when i'm getting conned like those people really are just idiots is have you ever either experienced or known someone who experiences you know meeting someone and falling in love and just being completely smitten for this person um and you as kind of the outsider can see you know your best friend in this relationship and you're like uh oh um red flags like this girl this guy is actually not so great. And look at all of these things that are going wrong. And how can my buddy not see this? And so you decide to talk to them and you're like, hey, um, you know, have you thought about X or have you noticed Y or maybe you want to consider Z? What's their reaction going to be? Is it going um, to be, oh, my God, you're so right. No, Thank you for are, being a good friend.
0: They justify
1: yeah, exactly. And they're going to say, you just don't want me to be happy, right? right you're just right. jealous. Like you don't, you don't understand. You don't know what's going on. And they will rationalize so much. It's not even funny. And you've been the person who's done that too. And then in retrospect, you're like, oh my God, why didn't I listen to you? You were so right. Um, how could I have ended up in this horrible relationship? And why did it take me so long to get out of it? Um, but while you were in it, you didn't hear them, no matter how much they told you. That you were wrong. But that's a tip. Like that is what happens in a con. You're in that relationship with the con artist and you are emotional. You're emotionally involved. And so you don't actually see any of the steps because you have these two things that are actually opposed in your brain, emotion and reason. The more emotional you are, the less you're likely and the less you're able to kind of have the resources to look at logic and to look at reason. And that's what con artists rely on. So that's actually step one of the con is that they trigger your emotion. It's not literally step one. There are a few other steps that I go through in my book, but when you get pulled in is they really trigger your emotions and they make you emotionally involved in their story. And that's a red flag. That's a huge red flag. The moment that you become kind of invested in something emotionally is when you stop seeing logical fallacies and inconsistencies and the reasons why this might be a con, which is why someone from the outside can actually see what's going on. But the moment your emotions have been activated, you no longer can do that. Unfortunately, by that point, your emotions have been activated. And so it's very difficult for you then to take a step back from that. So that's something that I actually try to tell people um, is to always try to think of themselves in the third person, whenever they're in any sort of situation where they're feeling like very emotionally invested. So try to imagine that this isn't you. Try to imagine that it's happening, you know, to Bob next door or whoever you want to imagine. And what would you tell Bob? Would you be really happy for him and say, oh my God, this is so awesome. Or would you say, hey, Bob, you know, there are some red flags here. And that is much easier to say than to actually do when it's happening to you, especially when the thing that's happening to you is good. So we are very good at asking questions when shit hits the fan. You know, When things go wrong, we are like, oh my God, I didn't actually deserve this. What's going on? Blah, 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 blah. But when you get a great opportunity or meet a great person or something really good happens, do you ask questions? No, you're, you're like, oh my God, this is awesome. This is great. And those are the moments when we need to be the most skeptical. And unfortunately, we're not because we want to believe it's true. And so what I say is the best way to identify a con is when something you really want to be true starts happening, start being very, very skeptical. But it's not human nature to do that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, we all want to enjoy those moments where it's just life finally seems to uh, be playing the cards in our favor and that skepticism is hard to execute in that moment i'm i'm exactly. curious i'm curious as to like how overwhelm and and maybe like an inundation of information actually plays into into this, because I think that you know you've kind of touched on the emotional part of it, and mm-hmm. you know, how we are easily persuaded and we are easily sort of shifted and and moved into a space of being susceptible uh, to to something that's maybe not in alignment with what we actually want, based on an emotional response, like a listening emotional response um, in us, based on like our past trauma and 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 insecurities and all that other kind of stuff. But what about, what about overwhelm? You know, we live in this time and I think this kind of came out with, with the Trump campaign and, and not to take this in a political uh, spectrum, but, but one of the things that was really used is this overwhelm of information and just sort of inundating. And not only that, just putting the same message on repeat throughout different platforms. So is that also part of, part of a con generally?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So there are a few different ways to short circuit kind of logic and skepticism and rational thinking. Emotion is one of them. And the other one is exactly what you're talking about, information overload, cognitive overload, um, because the just the fact is that we have limited mental capacity. So our brains can't just take in limitless amounts of information at you know at high speeds all the time we can't do it we can't process it that's why um you know i've always said and i've written about this and given talks about this, that we don't have the ability to multitask, that that's actually a myth. What happens with multitasking when you have multiple things going on is actually serial task switching because your brain can't do two things at once. It just very rapidly switches between things. And the end result is you exhaust your resources much more quickly and you become less able to focus on any one thing. Now, one of the ways that misinformation lies Kind of just false information about the world, false news, if you will, will make it into your brain is through sheer inundation because you can't process everything and actually take the time. To evaluate everything that you're hearing and on an individual basis on its merits and say, okay, true or false, um, is this actually, is this actually something that I need to believe or not? Our brain's default is to actually think of everything as true. That's how we take in the. Uh, that's how we take in the world because that's how you have to understand it. So first, you have to understand reality in order to be able to question reality. But that second step of questioning can only happen if we have the. The mental capacity to do it. And the more overwhelmed we are, the more our capacities are stressed, the less able we are to do that. And the other thing that you pointed out, just repetition, is also very detrimental to our abilities to distinguish what's true from what's not. Because the more we hear uh, something, the more familiar we become. Uh, with it. And the more familiar something is, the more true it actually feels because it's something that you've kind of gotten used to. So if you say something enough times, maybe the first time people are like, that sounds really, really wrong, but then eventually be like, oh, maybe, maybe it's right. If you've ever had the experience of mispronouncing a word or having someone just constantly mispronounce it or misspell it, and all of a sudden you can't remember how it's actually pronounced or how it's actually spelled, Have you had that happen to you? That happens to me all the time.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely.
1: And I'm just staring at I'm like, oh my God, is this right or wrong? And you really can't tell. So that's at a very basic perception level. That is exactly what happens to the facts where you can't be like, where sometimes you just stare at it and you're like, wait, I don't know what's right anymore because I've heard or I've seen this way so often that I can't distinguish the truth from the not truth anymore. Um, Con artists are incredibly good at doing this. And unfortunately, our brains are just no match to someone who's willfully and maliciously trying to do this and trying to press that button over and over and over.
0: So interesting. So it's almost like the repetitiveness of misinformation just sort of dished out. Uh, in in a means that allows us to have maybe a, an emotional response overwhelms our system and then and then sort of reprograms us or like rewires us in a way where that becomes the sort of like new truth or new reality.
1: Yeah, it's scary. Yeah, it's really All, scary.
0: this is this is where like the hashtag alternative facts comes <laughs> <laughs> comes very yeah. clearly into play, right? You're like, oh yeah, alternative facts. These are this is exactly what you're what you you know pretty much just laid out. Um, so fascinating. How. How have you seen this? Like this, one of the things that, that immediately comes to mind is, is like the, you know, the, this sort of like self help and, and personal development industry, uh, and, and the rise of that over the last few years. Do you see any of this content or, or being relevant in that space? Cause it seems like there's a very thin line. Between people who are are genuinely capable and willing and and set up to support other people and other people that are there for very specifically their own benefit and they're and they're very proficient at manipulation. So I'm I'm curious to get your insight on that.
1: Yeah, it's a thin line, and as I write in the book, so my my last the last chapter of the book is devoted to religion and cults, and one of the things that I write, um, and I think this is this gets to the heart of your point, is that. Uh, one man's guru is another man's cult leader, right? So you have, you have a thin line between kind of true believers and not. And sometimes it's really, really hard to tell the difference because you know what, they often sound exactly the same and it gets down to a question of intention. Do you know you're selling snake oil? Do you know that you're just total bullshit um, and that you're trying to rope in people to get their money, to get their emotional support, to exert power over them. If you think about a lot of cults, that's exactly what they're doing. They they get you to sign up for one class, then they get you to sign up for a weekend seminar, then they get you to sign up for a month. And all of a sudden, you're siphoning off all of your money to this quote-unquote business seminar, uh, which is really a cult under um, much more modern guise. Mm. But then sometimes you have someone who truly, truly believes he is making your life better. Um, And he is a true believer, like he drank his snake oil, like he drank the Kool-Aid, and he actually believes that this Kool-Aid will give you superpowers. Um, And maybe he's a little deluded, but he does really believe it. And so he wouldn't be a con artist because even though what he might be doing might not be helpful and might actually be hurting you in some ways, he really does think that he's helping. And so the problem is we can't get into people's minds to figure out what's your intention. And do you really know what you're doing? You know, are you consciously hurting people? Are you consciously taking advantage of them? Or do you really believe in what you're, what you're saying? Do you really believe in this message? And I do think that one huge red flag is the financial element. The more expensive something is, um, the more kind of recurring payments, the more it takes advantage of people who really can't afford it, um, the more likely it is to be a con. Um, because people who are truly out there to help, they will often do things pro bono. You know, the, some of, think about like the best psychiatrists who are very expensive because they are you know offering high professional medical services they will offer discounts or ways of people who can't afford them to be able to come and have their services because they're doctors and they really want to help and they want to do they want to do good genuinely and yeah they can't take everyone for free because they they're not you know they're not people who are have limitless resources on their own they do need to eat as well but they are happy to do that sometimes whenever they need to help and if you think of a lot of organizations i'm not going to name any names right now because we're not doing an exposé on cults <laughs> uh, but you know think about a lot of those like they will they don't mind taking your last penny and they have zero qualms about it and they say yeah you should actually give up everything all of your worldly assets and come and you know join me and i'll keep them safe don't you worry um, And you see this happening over and over and over under different guises. And people are like, oh, this is, you know, it's my spiritual awakening. Um, and it's almost impossible to get people out of that sort of um, situation because it is very emotional. And oftentimes, and this is another huge red flag, any organization that starts putting people down that has public shaming as part of it. And you see that actually happening a lot of times at these quote unquote business seminars. Anytime that that's a huge element of it, that is a red flag that it might be a con, because that's one way to break people down and to get them to trust you and to believe in your message is to kind of dismantle their sense of self-worth and then pretend that you're building it back up and that you're really trying to get at the roots of the problems. But um, So those are a few things that you can look out for when... You try to see, okay, is this someone who's legitimate self-help, like really believes in it, or is this someone who's kind of con artist self-help, who is just trying to profit financially, profit through the sense of power and control over other people, um, you know, profit in any of those ways.
0: So what you're saying is, if I start a Man Talks uh, public shaming platform and commune <laughs> where everybody has to give up all of their stuff, my the, the people that tune into this should run for the hills.
1: Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, so no commune. However, I'm starting this new venture that will really change your life. And all you need first is to just come to one seminar of mine at a very reasonable cost of $100, which is really just nothing. Um, and then we'll take it from there.
0: <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> it's funny because I just... I just did a, I just did a mini episode about cultivating self discipline and that the uh-huh. whole, the whole role or whole goal of any great coach or teacher or mentor is for them to train you, uh, to, to train you in such a way that they train themselves out of your life. So any Absolutely. any teacher, any coach, anybody in that vein, they're really trying to develop you to such a degree that they become obsolete in your life. And I think yep. that that that's usually a good litmus test. At least I've used that in the past. It's a good litmus test for like, is this person just trying to keep me on repeat and and have me in the bank over and over and over again, or are they you know really trying to develop me in such a way that I can go out into the world and be self sufficient, self functional? So uh, thoughts on that? Yeah,
1: that's. I think that's absolutely correct. And that's a very good litmus test. You know, I used to tutor um, to kind of help supplement my income before I got on my feet as a writer. And I would always say this to both the people I tutored and their parents, because I tutored kids. um, I would say, you know, my goal is to not have a job. That means that I've given your child the skills that they need to actually learn on their own. You know, I don't want you to be employing me, you know, in a few years. I want to tutor myself out of this. And I think that that's actually the goal of anyone who actually wants to help people, give them the tools to help themselves so that they... You know, stop needing you at all. And I do think that con artists don't want to do that. Con artists want to be in a repeat relationship with you. They don't want you to be self-sufficient. They want you to keep going back, to keep signing up for the next seminar. You know, you're not actually self-actualized yet. You thought you were, but there's, there's new depth. You can be even more self-actualized. And look, there's now new science that came out and I have more tools for you here. Take more tools. And there's always something new. And there's, once again, there's a thin line between savvy marketing um, and being a con artist. And yeah, I do think that some people who would say, I'm absolutely not a, a con artist. I'm just someone who, sure, I'm in the self help genre, but I'm just trying to help people have better lives. I do think they go overboard on like the follow ups and like the supplementary workbooks and then the supplementary seminars and then the talks and all of this and all of that. And all of a sudden they have people. You know, paying them thousands and thousands of dollars um, for information that was available in the first book, or in the first podcast, or whatever it is. So I do think that they sometimes cross the line, but they wouldn't say so. They'd just say that they're savvy businessmen.
0: Nice. I like it. I like the clarification and the and the real life examples. Um, listen, I know that we're we're getting down to crunch time, so um, yeah. I would just I would love to to ask you two final questions. The first one sure. is is how do we uh how do we really start to to develop this skill where where we can learn from con artists in a, in a positive way? Or is there a way for us to learn from con artists in a, yeah. in a positive way where we can learn things like um, you know, healthy persuasion or positive mm-hmm. storytelling? What are some of the things that we need to know that we can arm ourselves and equip ourselves with? That's the one side. And then the second, I would just love to know what you have up and coming in the future because it sounds like you have a cool yeah. project on the rise.
1: Sure. So I do think that you can absolutely use basically all of the tools of the con artist for very good ends there is um a lot of variability um in how people use persuasion and persuasion actually doesn't have it doesn't come with a moral compass none of these tools do so it's not like all of these are bad or all of these are good it's all in the intent and it's all in how you do it so you know for a few things that con artists do extremely well that i think we'd be very well advised to do well ourselves is being a good listener so there is um this thing that's called the Ten Commandments of the Khan artist, and it's actually um it's up in the air whether these actually existed or not. If they did, um they were created by Victor Lustig, who's a very famous con artist who sold the Eiffel Tower, um, not once but twice, um, who you know perpetrated some of the most audacious cons of the early part of the 20th century. And his number one commandment is be a good con artist is a good listener, not a good talker. And think about how many times people tell you things and you're not actually listening to them. You are in your own mind, you're thinking about what you're going to say next, you're thinking about dinner, you're thinking about all sorts of things, you're not actually listening, you're not actively engaging what they're saying. Con artists are so good at doing that. And imagine if we were all slightly better at that, how much better we could become an understanding people. It's not inherently bad to understand what people want and what motivates them and what their hopes are and what their fears are. That could actually make us better friends, better partners, better, you know, just better at life, better at business, better at all sorts of things. But we don't do it often because we don't care, frankly. We care about ourselves. And so caring more and actually you know, being more invested in the listening side of things, I think is something that we could all um, take away from con artists and kind of something that will make us much better at our own lives. And to give you kind of a second thing. So we talked earlier about con artists' abilities to kind of make you, make you think you want to do, like make you think that something was your own idea when really it wasn't. Think about if you could actually use those sorts of persuasive tactics for the good. You know, if somebody needs help and you kind of convince them that, you know, it's their idea to go see a doctor, to go see a psychiatrist, whatever it is, that could be really useful. Or let's not even go in that direction. What if you think someone could actually, you know, have some great business ideas but they lack the risk-taking to do it, that they actually lack the confidence in themselves. Think about if you could actually persuade them and plant that seed in their own mind that they can do it and that this is an opportunity that they can take. So con artists do that with fake business opportunities all the time. Well, what if we actually did it with real things, with real things that people can pursue, skills that they can learn, people they can meet, um, just push them to kind of be better versions of themselves rather than fake um, opportunities that don't actually exist. Hmm. So I think that those are two elements that we can take and really use to make lives better and make our own life better and make other people's lives better. But the list goes on. I think all of these can be used for good as well as for evil.
0: Yeah. I mean it was it's interesting because as you were sort of discussing and unpacking that second one there uh, and even the first one, I, I was thinking to myself like, yeah, I would I imagine that this is what really great coaches and even really great therapists and psychologists to a certain degree implement. Sometimes, you know, are, are these mm-hmm. skill sets of listening, these skill sets of empowering and sort of you know pushing them out to, to to sort of guide them in that direction. So it's kind of funny because on on one hand we're we're almost talking about like the the two sides of of the same coin, uh, and it's just how that that knowledge and that power and that wisdom is actually uh, used in real life. so mm-hmm. incredible exactly. incredible and and in terms of what you have up and coming, I would just love to give the listeners a, a glimpse because uh, it sounds like a really cool project.
1: Yeah, so my next book, which will be out we hope in 2019 and which is called The Biggest Bluff, actually chronicles my immersion into the world of high stakes poker. So for the last year I've been on leave from the New Yorker and playing poker full time. So I've actually just thrown myself into this right now. I am for all intents and purposes a professional poker player. Um so I've gone from you know, writing full time to playing full time. And this will be kind of the narrative experience for the next book, which is not about poker as such, but more about the journey and kind of the issues, the questions of luck in life. The big question of how much of our lives do we actually control? Can we learn? to tell the difference between skill and chance using poker, specifically No Limit Hold'em as kind of a big metaphor for life.
0: Incredible. Incredible. Well, that sounds like an amazing journey and I cannot wait to check it out because it sounds like something that, uh, you know, I think a lot of people would be interested in, especially considering how much of how much of life we perceive to be just luck. So so Liz and Marie, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you joining me today.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Connor. It was an absolute pleasure.
0: Awesome. And for everybody else out there, definitely head on over, uh, check out website. Uh, check out a writing in the New Yorker and definitely go ahead and check out some of her books. The most re- recent one, The Confidence Game, uh, something that we've been talking about today. Uh, really an in- incredible, incredible read with some great concepts in there. So don't forget to share this episode, Man It Forward, if you found it helpful and useful with one person that you think would enjoy listening to it. Uh, and head on over to either iTunes, Spotify or even YouTube and subscribe, leave us a rating and review. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual.